0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey leaders, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting our important work this past year as we grow to master leadership collectively. And as we close out 2018, here are the top 10 most listened to episodes. We look forward to continuing to add value in 2019 enjoy hey this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host Lily Cenabria hello leaders this is lily and welcome to the 100th episode of Master Leadership Podcast. I'm doing this a little differently. Typically, I write out the script because I want to make sure that my message is delivered clearly. This time, um, you can probably hear it in my voice. I've been crying and I chose to just record um, because I want it to be just raw, authentic, storytelling, right? I want it to flow. And um, so the 100th episode, I don't want it to be somber because it's not. By the 90th episode, I was trying to decide what to do. I know that 100th episode is a milestone. We've done a lot. I know that I've grown a lot. I know that I've talked to a lot of people who have grown as well. And so this is special. This is something to celebrate. And so I really thought, well, what can I do? Should I re-invite someone? Should I invite a special guest? Um, should I do a special topic? And I couldn't think of it. And, it. and we're on the 99th episode. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And then this past weekend, I went to see a movie. It's a movie called I Can Only Imagine. And is the story of Mercy Me a Christian band and um, it is a spiritual movie and I typically don't go for these movies but this one is different and if you can go see it it certainly stirred me to the point where I've been crying for days and these are tears of deep heart healing cry so I have to go with it and I typically when this happens I go with it and so it became really clear after seeing the movie, the topic showed up. The topic of forgiveness, and this is what I'm talking about today, and how important it is to leadership. Because great leaders practice forgiveness. All the great leaders that I've admired, that I want to follow, the most important for me is Jesus Christ. But when I think of other leaders, I think of people who practice forgiveness. I think of Martin Luther King. I think of Mother Teresa. I think of Nelson Mandela. Gandhi. These are men and women who were great leaders and who practiced forgiveness. And so I want to tell you my story of forgiveness because it's very connected to my why. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, the reason why I do what I do the passion that burns in my heart about why it's important to really work on yourself because we really affect other people around us when we don't need ourselves well. And so I'll start the story referring to my trust manifesto in episode 18, where I spoke about how I was raised by a pedophile. Now, I believe that it was from the age of five to the age of 12. And um, I can't remember anything prior to the age of five, but it could have been before because I recently watched a film, an old film, one of those eight millimeter films that I had converted. And um, I didn't know what I would find there. And I saw myself as probably two or three years old. And I've worked with two and three year olds. And when I saw my face, it was me. I didn't even connect with this little girl, but I did see her eyes. I looked at her as an observer, like I would observe for any two and three year old. And her eyes were different. Her eyes were not joyful. They were empty. And so I assume that it probably began a lot earlier than five. Anyway, so I was sexually abused by my father. And by the age of 23 I had done a lot. I had lived a lot. I got to the point in my life where I had experienced great loss and I was leading myself very poorly and I decided that I needed help. I needed a shift in my life and so if you know me I research things a lot before I make decisions but when I do make a decision it can be a quick decision but people don't see the backstory and so This isn't my come-to-Jesus story. This is my forgiveness story, so I'll start there. By the age of 23, I became a Christian, and I had gathered intentionally around myself people to help me through um, what I knew would be difficult. Because for a long time, if you've gone through this before, and I know that statistics say that 1 in 10 have gone through this, But I really know it's much higher because I've spoken to many people who have gone through this. And so I know that it's much higher and quite possibly you'd be tempted to turn this off. But I really urge you not to. I urge you to listen because my story is your story. And it may not be the same exact journey, but if you've gone through this, please listen because this is your story too. And there is an alternative ending (laughs) or an alternative beginning. And so I started to write a journal at the advice of some really good friends. And I had been seeing a counselor as well. That was probably one of the hardest journals to write. And it took me through a very dark time. But again, I surrounded myself with people that I knew would, would help me. I didn't go at it alone because I knew enough. I knew that my emotions could get out of control and that was probably the scariest thing. And I have to say that this was the first leg of my journey towards forgiveness because it just didn't happen. Although forgiveness can happen right away, it does take some time to cultivate if you're doing it authentically. And so I, again, I finished my journal and I remember going to work one day and I was sitting In a car in Manhattan going into the city and this surge of emotions came over me. Now that this cart was full of people and all I can think of doing was running through the train and I envisioned myself just this urge to run through the train and I, I had to grip my seat to stop myself from doing this because I felt so out of control. And so I gripped my seat And I managed to get myself back on the train home. I could not go to work that day. And I guess this is a fear that a lot of us have of losing that control. But I knew that I had to go through this to heal. Anyway, I got back home. And I remember going to service that night. And um, I hadn't been able to speak to people yet. I did stop a couple of friends, actually I did stop a friend, and I said, I need help, I need to talk, but we were going through a worship time, and so as I was worshiping and clapping and singing, suddenly, and I know that I'm being extremely vulnerable here, everything went slow motion for me, and I'm pretty rational, and I'm pretty level-headed. Emotional, yes. Yes. But it's like a movie. Things went slow motion, like slow motion. And it it scared me so much. I was so scared. And um, I grabbed someone that was passing by, and I said, I need to talk to you. And so we sat down to talk. And it was during service, I remember, we sat down to talk. And some other people gathered around me, people that I trusted. And um, I shared with them what had happened that day. And I was very scared and I was very vulnerable. And this was extremely uncomfortable for me. Um, But I did it. And um, I, I'm a risk taker as well. And so I was taking a lot of risks here. So a friend, Renee, I'll never forget Renee. She said to me, read your journal. And now I had just finished writing my journal. And she said to me, read your journal. And I thought. No, I didn't think of it. Actually, I said it. I said, no, you can read my journal. I didn't want to read my journal. I was exhausted. I didn't want to go through that again. I I did it already. And she said, read your journal. And I, I pushed it to her. She extended it like I had given it to her. And she was pushing it back, give it back. And I pushed it into her. Now I'm almost getting very angry. And what I know about myself and what I've come to know about myself is that typically when I get angry, there's an undertone or what I'm really feeling is fear. So I knew that I was fearful and it was coming out. If you know me, I was raised in the South Bronx, so my ghetto was coming out. I was going back there and I pushed it back to her and I was getting so angry and I was almost... Mm, taunting like I felt like come on come on like I wanted a fight and um, she wouldn't let up I was angry at her but she loved me enough to not let up and she pushed it back to me and I opened it and I started reading and I was sobbing I started to sob and to be just what I feared out of control. And I I had this cry, you know, that cry that kids have that, (laughs) you know, where you're catching your breath. She would direct me. I would hear her directing me, go on, go on. And I kept crying and I hear her go on. I became so angry with her and I just shut down. I wiped my tears and I continued to read as if someone else was reading. I threw my emotions out. I was very stoic as I continued to read, I became more flat in my emotions and just read as if I was reading somebody else's story. I finished the journal, by the time I finished reading it, I was seething with anger. I took the journal and I gave it to her and I sat back ready for a fight, right? Ready for an argument but there was still a very, very small voice in my heart that came up for me as I read. And one of the things that came up was forgiveness. And when it did come up, I remember thinking, don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to do this. Don't ask me to do this. And the thing that I was referring to was, don't ask me to talk to my dad. I won't. And now all this was internal dialogue that was happening. And as soon as I finished, and as soon as I gave her the journal, she said to me, Lily, you haven't forgiven. And I just sat there, again, very stoic. And actually, um, it wasn't stoic, it was anger. A very um, controlled, like I was trying to control my anger. And uh, I looked at her, and if if I had laser vision, uh, I'd probably chop the top of her head off. But um, that's how I was looking at her. And she loved me enough to not let up. She came up against me. She came up for me. She came up beside me. And she said to me, you need to talk to your dad. And I lost it because I knew this wasn't coming from her. Remember, I had I had that voice, that small voice in my heart. It came up as I was reading my journal. So that came up for me then. She just voiced it. And so that was, to me, a confirmation. But it still was so scary. And I was so angry. And I said, I can't. I'll do anything but that. I'll do anything to forgive but that. And she said, well, that's how you forgive. And I couldn't. I remember thinking I don't have it in me I can't you can't ask me to do this I will walk away from you I won't do this and with great wisdom Renee she saw the struggle she um, hugged me I didn't want to be hugged <laughs> but she did anyway and um, and with great wisdom she prayed she prayed with me We all prayed together, and and then she said, keep praying about it. It'll come up. A time will come up when you can do this. And she did believe in me, and I know that she did, but I didn't hear it at that time. And so I went home. I was angry. Um, I could barely sleep. And at that time, I was going to Fordham University, finishing my B.A., and I still live with my parents. So the next morning, I, I went to school, and um, I came home in the afternoon. Now, you know, this was in my mind; it, it kept coming up as as much as I kept pushing it down. And if you've gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. You keep pushing down a thought, you keep pushing down the feelings, you keep pushing down these emotions that seem out of control, and it, and it can be, it can feel that way. So to feel those feelings all over again. What I was experiencing were the feelings of a five-year-old, a six-year-old, seven, all the way to 12. I was feeling all those things that I had suppressed for so long. And so no wonder I was feeling so out of control. And I think this is part of the reason why we don't address this is because we feel like we will be out of control. And one of the things that I knew enough to do was to surround myself with a support system, and so that's extremely important. My situation is very different from other people's situation, but it doesn't mean that we can't forgive. It doesn't mean that we can't go on the journey of forgiveness. I share my journey because had I not gone through it, I don't know where I'd be, and I don't know if I could be of any help to anyone. But I I know that this wasn't in vain, and so I, I press on, right? The next day, again, I had gone to school. I had showed up to my classes. I really wasn't present. And so I'm coming home, and I expect when I walk through the door of the apartment, I expect for my mother to be cooking and for my father to be sleeping. Because my father was a postal worker, and so he would get up at four in the morning listening to 1010 10, Winds. For years, I heard this. And so when I walked through that door, that's what I expected to see. Um, now, I was getting myself ready, right? I was thinking and praying through this. I didn't know how it would end up or where we would end up. But certainly, as I walked through the door, that's what I expected. I expected to go into my room and wrestle with this, right? And so when I walked through that door, the expectation that I had was because that's what happened for years. (laughs) Nothing ever diverted from that. But when I walked through that door, this time directly in front of me, I can see the kitchen and directly in front of me, I saw my father reading a paper and it just threw me and I said, where's mom? Now I expected to see her cooking and I expected my father to be sleeping, as had has happened for years before that. This time it was different. And so when I saw this, I knew that was my cue. And so I asked, where's mom? He said, she went shopping. And um, I knew she wouldn't be back for a while. So I knew that God was setting this up for me to do. And the fear that I felt... I. I can't even express it but I went quickly to my room I closed the door and I buckled to my knees I buckled and I prayed God can't. I don't know how to do this I prayed I don't know how to forgive how do I forgive this what do I say how do I communicate it was so difficult for me to communicate my heart And this was something that I struggled with. And um, I stayed there, shivering at how fearful it was. I wanted to obey. When I became a Christian, one of the things that I would do is test the scriptures to see if they were true. And based on what I saw, based on the evidence that was before me, because I'm very rational. I can be emotional, yes. But I'm very rational. You reason through things with me. Until it makes sense and then I will walk forward. But this, this was different. This was asking me for faith. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how that would show up. And so I'm shivering and I'm praying. And I tell you, I felt, and it wasn't a physical thing, but I felt him lift me up to my feet and give me this courage. I felt this surge of courage and this small voice that said, you can do this. And I stood up completely, completely calm and in control. And it's not to say that I was in control, but I was resolute. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I grabbed my journal and I walked out to the kitchen and I said, dad, can I talk to you? And he said, sure. Now, dad and I had been cordial. It was clear that we had issues. It was clear. In fact, when I was a teenager. I remember a fight we had. Um, it's not like we had physical confrontations all the time. But this one time, as a teenager, I would taunt him. It's almost like I would taunt him. In my heart, I would say, come on, come on, just hit me. I just wanted to fight. I fought a lot as a kid, but um, I wanted to fight. And that was my dad. And that was foolish because he was so much bigger than me. And I remember I taunted him so much as a teenager one time that he backslapped slapped me. And it was so hard that I fell back. I hit my head on the counter. And as I was coming up, I grabbed a knife and I was ready to stab his heart. And um, my mom was there. She stopped me and he backed away. But that's the extent of my anger. So back to the story where, okay, so I'm calling him. I said, can I talk to you? And he said, sure. He got up. We went to the living room. He sat there. Now, I still didn't know what I was going to say, but I sat across from him and i looked at him <laughs> and i opened my journal and i read my whole journal to him i didn't look up once but i heard him sniffle and i continued when i was done i remember my eyes tearing up and i um i summoned up the courage to look at him and ask i have one question for you dad you now here i was looking at the tormentor of my life eyeballing him face to face, eyeball to eyeball. By this time, he was in tears. He was crying. So I knew that my journal, it did something to him. Now, when I entered this, one of the things that I knew was not to expect a response. I just didn't know what to expect, but whatever happened was going to happen. I asked him, Why did you do this? And um, I'll never forget. He was crying, and that didn't hit me. But what he said shifted my whole heart into forgiveness. He said, I'm so sorry. I know how you feel. And that was like, what? What do you mean, you know how I feel? He said, I was abused by a family member for years. And, um, The only way I can explain how that landed on me was here I was at this climactic moment in my life, this this anger, this volcanic eruption, right? I didn't know what was going to happen. And it's almost like you take a bottle of soda and you shake it real hard and then you open it and it explodes, but then it fizzles out quite quickly. And that's how it happened for me. As soon as that landed in my heart, like I heard those words, all the anger that I had for him completely melted away. And I know that that wasn't me because I was incapable of that. I know that God had walked me to that moment and through that moment. And that's what I needed to experience. And so my thinking from then on about my dad was compassion, not compassion for what he did, because what he did was horrible. But I had people I could talk to. I had people that I turned to, and I know I've walked that journey. I know how difficult it is for those words to come out of your mouth, for people who had been victims to step into the light. I know how difficult that is. And for the first time, I think my dad was about, he was in his 50s at this time. This was the first time he had voiced this. So having walked that journey, my heart felt compassion. And that was the moment of forgiveness. It wasn't the end of the journey, but it was the moment of forgiveness. And it was, to me, miraculous Because I never thought I would get rid of that anger directed right at him, an arrow to the heart. It was gone. It was gone. And I can't explain how it was gone, except those words landed on me, and it was gone. And that was the first of many healing moments. Several years later, I had moved out of my house, I had gotten married, and On my wedding day, I actually danced with my dad. Um, It was a tearful moment. I remember him crying. And I said, Dad, why are you crying? And he said, oh, I have something in my eye. So I know that there was some healing. Now I was focused on helping him heal. And I didn't know how that was going to happen because as hard as this journey had been, and now I had a better relationship with him, it wasn't completely restored. So soon after that, he got very ill. Now, he had been an alcoholic. Ever since I can remember, he had always been drinking. And ever since I can remember, his eyes have always been bloodshot. And I was told that he was very handsome when he was younger. I did see the evidence in pictures. He was a baseball player. He was on the trajectory of doing really well in baseball. And then he had some disappointments. But anyway, um, I had in my heart this is just a desire to help him somehow. But there was a wall and my dad was extremely prideful. Um, As far as God is concerned, he would say, soy católico, apostólico y romano. So Catholic, apostolic, and Roman. I never knew what that meant. (laughs) Well, he'd only been in church maybe twice in his life for his wedding and for, I believe, my infant baptism. Anyway, so I remember David and I were on vacation and we got this call that dad was in the hospital Um, now prior to that I remember picking him up from the airport one day and I had never seen my dad so fragile like he got off the plane and I hardly recognized him he had been away he was trying to build a house in Puerto Rico and when he came back he had aged significantly and I remember him um, with great effort just pulling the rolling luggage that he had and he looked really fragile and my heart went out to him and I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, oh, I think I I have some ulcers. And I looked at him and I said, no, that's your liver. And um, we hospitalized him shortly after I took him to the doctor. Um, And then I remember my husband and I one day being on vacation and we got this call that he was in bad shape. I never thought that I would have this compassion. I never thought that I would have this, this feeling in my heart like this uh, compassion to to help him. And I know the scriptures that kept running through my head um, was that um, it's better for you to have a millstone wrapped around your neck and thrown into the river than for you to sin against God's little ones. And I'm obviously paraphrasing. And I couldn't think of my dad having seen him so fragile, having known where he'd come from, and I know what he did. I still had this compassion, and, and I didn't know how to get through to him. Because at the end of the day, as bad as things were, I didn't want him to have no hope, right? And so, when we got the news, that very night, I couldn't sleep. I could not sleep. I tried, I could not sleep. And I was very stirred by God's spirit. And I got up and I started to write a letter to my dad I couldn't find the letter, I tried to find it, but I remember the heart of the letter and it was basically me retelling his story, how God had created him and how he had a beautiful wife and he had a a great career going for him and that his best thinking really completely destroyed that. And yet, God loved him so much that through his seed, who he harmed greatly, through his daughter he was reaching out to him. And um, I remember I just kept writing, and I sealed it. And David and I went to the hospital the next day. We drove for miles, and we arrived at the hospital, and I handed him this letter. Now, I had tried to approach him about God and the love of God, and he never listened. Um, There was a wall, and I thought that he would listen, but he didn't. And finally, um, I gave him this letter and I prayed. The very next day, he said to me, I want to study the Bible. And um, I'll never forget how different he was. It was as if I were encountering my dad years ago, Um, even before I knew him. I don't know. It was really bizarre. It was a new person. And I said to him, well, you're going to have to go through your journey. It's going to be rough. And um, and he said to me, he said, whatever I need to do, mamita, I'll do. And um, after that, um, he became a Christian. I remember I baptized him (laughs) and it was a glorious day um, because he was a new creation and there was so much hope for him. He did become increasingly ill. And um, he would try to read the Bible. What I did at that time, I would read. And like I'm doing now, I would actually narrate the Bible and he would listen to it. And I remember one day, his um, belly had been distended. It was filled with fluid. And if you've ever encountered someone who has liver failure, you would know what this is. It's a horrible disease. And um, he couldn't move. This man who had been so strong. And now he was so weak and he couldn't even stand. Now he was so fragile. And he was laying down on his side. And I remember, and now I never thought I would ever be able to do this. I mean, I couldn't be in the same room with my dad. The smell of alcohol, beer in particular, still gets to me. But now I remember laying down next to him, where eye to eye, And I have to tell you, as sick as he was, I've never seen his eyes as bright and as alive as on that day. And I said to him, Dad, oh my goodness, I was so taken by that. I said, "You, you have beautiful blue eyes. And he smiled. And um, shortly after that, he, he was on a donor's list, and, and that was miraculous, after he had subjected his body to so much alcohol. And that was unheard of, but he did get on the list after going through this process, and um, he did receive a liver transplant. But shortly after that, he also developed sepsis. Um, he died maybe two days after his liver transplant. But I was there. When he went flatline, right before, I mean, you can see his body turning yellowish. And I was the only one with him. And my dad, after he became a Christian, he used to love to hear worship songs. I wasn't much of a singer. I still am not much of a singer. Um, In fact, when I used to sing, he used to tell me, sing solo. Sing solo, I can't hear you. (laughs) And I still remember that. But I sang to him. I sang Amazing Grace. And as I was singing Amazing Grace to him, he went flatline. He died on September 1st, 1995. A few days later, I had my one and only dream with him. Dad had built a house in Puerto Rico with two levels. It was on top of a mountain in Utuado, Puerto Rico. And it was a glorious view. It was a two-level home. And at the top were these sliding glass doors. It was glass all around. And in my dream, the sliding glass doors were open. I was inside and there were these sheer curtains blowing in the wind. And there was this beautiful summer breeze and this wonderful scent. And I walked out on the balcony and I looked and my dad was dancing with my mom. And if you know me, I have this thing. If you have surgery right after surgery, I want to see the incision. I I know it's a kind of morbid thing about me, but I want to see. I'm curious. I want to see the incision. I want to see the sutures. Probably because I worked for a plastic surgeon for a long time, but I went over to him. He had this radiant, beautiful glow and smile. And I said, dad, let me see your scar. He was dressed in white linen clothes, like, you know, the, I guess a Caribbean look. He had these white linen pants and this white V-neck shirt. Um, He looked real handsome. And I said, Dad, let me see your scar. He laughed and he lifted up his shirt. And there was no scar. It was completely healed. And I heard his hearty laugh from his heart. He was happy. And that was the very last time, the only time I dreamt of him. And so I tell this journey because... It was some of many healing moments as someone that was trying to lead themselves well because I, at this point in my life, I knew my life matters. I knew that there was a purpose and there was a why for my being here and that I had to take responsibility for my own life because my life and how I lived it affected those around me. And so as a leader, I knew that I had to deal with me That it was important that I walk that journey. Now, everybody's journey is different. And not all things are going to work out the way we expect. But what I do know is that a good leader knows that there is a God. A good leader surrenders to that God so that he or she can serve the people around them. I, I think about being that slingshot in the hands of King David. David was in complete control of that slingshot. That slingshot killed a giant. So it was through the slingshot. And so I had made an agreement in my life never to be a tool again. And yet here I was and I decided I chose to be a tool for good. I wanted to share this journey of forgiveness because there are many of us. There are many leaders, especially in education. And I say that because that's my realm. That's where I've walked. That's what I've seen. In education, there are many people that I would say are walking wounded. And whether it's because we haven't forgiven, whether it's because we haven't faced or dealt with our stuff, then we need to stop and deal with our stuff. Part of the reason why this doesn't happen is this fear. I get it, that fear of losing control of one's emotions, that fear of completely losing it. And what I can say is that if it weren't for the fact that I surrendered to God, my maker, my maker knows, I wouldn't have been able to walk this path. He was the one that surrounded me, and I had to be intentional about this, that surrounded me with people to help me And I had to walk this journey of trust. I'm still on this path. I'm still healing. In fact, having watched this movie helped me in so many ways remember this journey. I've written some of it on paper and there's a book I've been wanting to write for years, but this is the first time that I've recorded my journey. And so it's scary as all heck. I don't know how it will be received. And I have to tell you, I'm fearful about that, but I'm walking this path again. I'm taking these steps. I'm taking these risks because a leader does that. And I want to be intentional. I want to be a great leader. There's no doubt about it. And I know what that means. What that means is serving others. What that means is giving your life away. What that means is being that slingshot, that tool for other people. And so... I want to encourage you to walk this journey of forgiveness if this is your journey. So if you want to take this path towards leadership and you want to be a great leader, and I believe that that's the heart of most of us. We want to be great leaders and we're stuck. We're stuck in this fear place. I know that fear place. And I also know that you can walk through that fear place. Here are some great quotes about forgiveness that can help you on your journey. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. Martin Luther King Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Oscar Wilde It's one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself to forgive. Forgive everybody. Maya Angelou The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong, Mahatma Gandhi. Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness is the final act of love, Beyonce. Holding a grudge doesn't make you strong, it makes you bitter. Forgiving doesn't make you weak, it sets you free. Dave Willis. Sins cannot be undone, only forgiven. Igor Stravinsky. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Anne Lamott. Forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. Forgiveness. You cannot afford to withhold forgiveness. Nothing will destroy your life more surely, for there is a great hidden grief in the denial of forgiveness. Your heart is so heavy from what you have not forgiven that you bear the offenses of another as if they were your own. Glenda Green There is no love without forgiveness and there is no forgiveness without love. Bryant H. McGill Forgiveness does not change the past but it does enlarge the future. Paul Bosey Forgiveness liberates the soul It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Nelson Mandela It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. Mother Teresa And one of my favorites. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus Christ This speaks greatly to my heart. Because if we love little, it's because we don't have a sober estimate of who we are and what we're capable of doing. So if you're unapproachable as a leader, if you have a mean streak, if you are not adding value to people, if you're not compassionate, if you're not patient, if you anger easily, if you're quick to dismiss and judge other people, if you're not serving those you lead, and meeting their needs. These are all signs that we need to grow in our love, and we need to grow in our forgiveness, and we need to have a sober estimate of ourselves. And nothing does this quicker and more efficiently than intentionally having people speak into our lives. So those of you who are striving to be great leaders, and I imagine that that's all of you who hear this because not one of us want to be just mediocre leaders. We want to be great leaders and we need great leaders in education. So I want to invite you to masterleadership.org forward slash forgiveness and comment on this episode. And so I want to close this 100th episode with saying that it's been an extraordinary journey. I want to thank all of my guests, all of my listeners. Thank you so much for how you care for and lead our future.